well as her eccentrically spiked South Pacific headdress. An enormously fat woman who was accompanied by a tiny man, she inspired one of the coronation's most famous quotes. Who's that with Queen Siloti? Noel Coward was reputedly asked. Her lunch, he replied. Queen Siloti's dress was ruined by the rain, unlike that worn by a frugal young lawyer, whose husband had managed to buy sheltered seats for them on one of the specially built stands that lined the route. The tickets were an even wiser investment than Dennis knew when he bought them, Margaret Thatcher wrote later. The Queen of Tonga never wore that dress again. Mine lived to see another day. Waiting under a porch for her carriage, Princess Margaret was spotted flicking a piece of fluff of Group Captain Peter Townsend's uniform. That tiny, intimate gesture would reveal their affair to the world with explosive consequences. With most of the guests seated by 8.30am, it was a long wait until the arrival of the star of the show. Just before 11, the cumbersome gold coach carrying the Queen finally arrived. Exquisitely gilded, painted and sculpted, the gold coach has been used for every coronation since the 18th century, but is stunningly uncomfortable. Queen Victoria complained bitterly about the distressing oscillation of the cabin and refused to step into it again. Even the mild George VI said his coronation journey was the most uncomfortable ride I have ever had in my life. But Elizabeth was able to hide any discomfort during the show and the unwieldy gold coach pressed on down the mall, drawn by eight grey horses and kept on the straight and narrow by a team of four postillions, nine grooms, six footmen and four yeomen of the guard. As with the wedding six years earlier, the subject of the dress had been the source of frenzied speculation. As she stepped out of the coach, it didn't disappoint. Norman Hartnell had once again triumphed. The theatrical final result was an astonishing feat of embroidered symbolism, which took a team of workers eight months to complete. Working with satin and silk, gold and silver bullion, pearls, amethysts, opals and crystals, no corner of Britain or the Commonwealth was neglected. There was a Tudor rose, a Welsh leek, a Scottish thistle and an Irish shamrock. There was a Canadian maple leaf, an Australian wattle flower and a South African protea. There were lotus flowers for India and Ceylon and crops to represent Pakistan. Later, Hartnell had secretly added an extra four-leaf shamrock for good luck, just at the point where her left hand naturally rested on the dress. Attached to her shoulders was a crimson velvet robe, six yards long and edged with ermine. Impossible for the small queen to carry the weight of it on her own, it was held up by her six maids of honour. Equally admired were the historic coronation jewels, chiefly the coronation necklace made for Queen Victoria in 1858 and worn by every queen since, including her mother. With 161 carats of enormous stones, including the 23-carat Lahore diamond, it was, and still is, 
the most valuable necklace in the world. Entering the abbey, Elizabeth looked pale and serious. Her robes were so heavy she had to ask the Archbishop of Canterbury to give her a push to get me started. She then walked slowly up the aisle, the heavily encrusted skirt swinging rhythmically from side to side. The British Coronation Service is a hodgepodge of largely medieval rites, although the most obscure elements date back more than a thousand years. One of these is the dramatic anointing of the sovereign with a special oil once deemed to have magical powers. The oil transfers to the sovereign the divine and lifelong right to rule. This bizarre quasi-religious ritual has not only survived the centuries, but if anything, the theatricality has intensified.